While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, Why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Hello, everyone. This is Charlene McPherson. I'm an LCSWC, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am Benjamin Tights. I am a registered psychological associate. My pronouns are he, him, his. And we have our special guest. Yay! Uh, My name is Aaliyah Payne. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Yay! Yay. So, I'm going to give a really cool intro for our special guest. For those of you who don't know her, but you should because she's amazing, Aaliyah, as she said, is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Orange County, California, currently finishing up her doctoral degree in psychology, just like me, yay, Go ID candidates. She enjoys supporting her clients and in stepping into their power and taking back their autonomy from trauma, saturated stories. She has recently been working on getting certified as an autism disorder clinical specialist. What inspired her to step into this work is that she recently discovered that she herself is autistic and has found so much healing and validation from acknowledging her neurodivergence and finding ways to gently support her mind and body in ways that actually work for her. She now is able to support her clients in a similar way and learn from them, as autistic individuals are all unique and always the expert of their own healing journey. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaliyah. Yeah, thank you. So, it's our 12th episode. I'm very excited, and it's about... uh, Technically, it's called Autism Spectrum, right? But we're going to be, just for listeners, we're going to be using probably neurodivergence a lot as a word. Um, It's a little bit more of a supportive way of uh, kind of identifying autism, ADHD, different different ways that brains work, kind of work. So if we say neurodivergence um, versus autism, you all then know, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. Because we want to go with the more supportive language than the, the disorder type of language, right? So, um, first off, what we're going to do, like we always do, is, Aaliyah, we are going to ask you what uh, the definition of autism is. And included in the definition, like, what does it actually feel like? You know, um, not the DSM diagnosis, but the actual lived experience diagnosis. Beautiful. Um, so there, this is, it doesn't need to be a complicated answer, but it also does need to be a complicated answer, right? 
So autism is a specific set of criteria in the DSM, right? And it's a deviation of process of brain processing from the norm. So often in autistic individuals, um, there's a huge variance in IQ, um, in executive functioning, and often there's a sensory processing disorder. And sensory processing disorder, um, the definition of that, because I think a few of these terms are really important to understand when understanding uh, uh, autism. So sensory processing disorder is a condition in which the brain has trouble receiving and responding to information that comes in through the senses. Um, and you know, some people with sensory processing disorder are oversensitive to things in their environment. And I know that when I read that definition and I heard oversensitive, I was like, I'm not oversensitive, right? Because we've heard that so I think a lot of autistic individuals, including myself, have often been stigmatized and told that they're being overly sensitive about uh, sensory uh, dysregulation. Um, but I think what this is really trying to say is that the sensitivity is more than necessary for any given moment, right, or, or functioning. So like for me as an autistic individual, um, I may, when I'm regulated in my nervous system, when I'm feeling safe, right, and our nervous system regulates safety within the body, so when I'm regulated, I may not feel as sensitive to certain sensory information in the environment, but when I'm overstimulated, um, so my nervous system is dysregulated, which can happen for several reasons, right? You can have emotional dysregulation or you can feel physically unsafe in your environment, which would also be emotionally dysregulated. Right? then I can feel overstimulation with certain sensory information. So now all of a sudden the lights are too bright. My clothes are too itchy. You know, my clothes are too loose or too tight or the sounds that I'm hearing are harsh and um, are taking up all of my, uh, my cognition. And maybe the person that I'm sitting next to, I can't understand them anymore because I'm way too focused on making sure that I'm safe, which means focusing on things that are farther away rather than things that are closer away and, and social. Um, so sen the sensory issues are, are really important to understand when it comes to autistic individuals. But I think when we're looking from a neurodivergency lens, we really wanna look at the strengths, right? So often some common, uh, you know, aspects of autism that you'll notice in, in, in a lot of autistic individuals, you know, everyone's different. And I can only speak of my unique experience, but autistic individuals tend to be detail oriented, focused, have great memories, um, have intelligence, especially in the area of their special interests, be very honest, um, want to connect with people, and tend to be very fair and just um, in their outlook and the way that they move around in the world. Um, so that's probably like the shortest answer I could possibly give. <laughs> 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 and there's so much more like autism is, is a life experience, right? So how do I explain that? But no, that was great. Well, I, I thought it was very helpful the way that you said it in that way, the way you explained 
how the sensory issues come about and how they can differ as a way of feeling safe. And I think that's an important aspect that is actually, at least from my experience with ADHD, it's it's almost similar. Um, maybe not to the same extreme, um, but I've also noticed something like that. And I guess that makes sense because now we understand that ADHD is considered now to be part of the overall spectrum. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was a very interesting way and never heard it said that way that it's about feeling safe in your environment and in that moment in your body um so thank you so much for for expressing it that way because i've now experienced something different that i've just like oh well this is just whatever but no it's i'm not feeling safe or whatever that's why <laughs> i feel antsy or distracted it's because i'm not yeah. safe i'm not yeah. regulated well and and too like a lot of the times, especially if it if it's undiagnosed for a pretty long time, what do you get with, you know, neurodivergence? You get anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> prolonged stress. What? What? How's that going to affect you? <laughs> exactly. You know, anxiety, depression, some of these these secondary uh, uh, things that come with it. Especially if you know you don't have any idea what's going on. You know, until you're in your late twenties, early thirties. Um, the anxiety becomes a coping mechanism. So that, that safety that you're talking about really makes sense there as well, I feel like. Yeah, and making decisions um, based off of that, I think was really helpful for me to understand within myself, right? Like, okay, how was I making decisions before I understood that I was autistic? And now that I realize that my autism is my body's way of protecting me and keeping me safe, how can I listen to um, my neurodivergence and be gentle with the things my brain is trying to tell me to do. Oh, my brain is trying to tell me to listen to this song over and over again for three days straight. Why? Because it's going to help me emotionally regulate this thing I've been avoiding <laughs> processing, right? And so it's, um, it's really interesting when, you, when I started leaning into my autism and really like accepting myself. And we talk about secondary... Um, secondary effects of, of prolonged stress is, is really that uh, struggle with self-esteem and identity. And as a person of color, as a black person, as a queer person and an autistic person, <laughs> my sense of identity, uh, you know, really struggled to develop as I grew up. Um, I chose life on hard mode, I suppose, you know, if it was a choice, which it wasn't, but yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, that leads me to a, a question I had. Because um, you mentioned, okay, it's life on hard mode, that you didn't choose this. Um, and I know it's been discussed a lot in, you know, various different professional circles and support circles for, for families of individuals with autism, um, that one of the biggest difficulties that life throws at them, the kind of the hard mode life is in social situations and social interactions. Um, can you explain a little bit about how does that present um, for people with autism? Is it uh, different for men versus women? Um, and does age also come into play? Like, do as they get older, do they learn it better? Or do they constantly still or on that hard mode, does it ever get easier? 
Hey listeners, this is your sound editor Natalie jumping in to say that unfortunately at this point Ben's audio cuts off, so for the rest of the episode you will only hear Charlene and Aaliyah speaking. We'll miss you, Ben. Yeah, so I can't necessarily answer those questions straightforward, but I will do my best. Um, so some of the some of the questions that you're asking is is let me let me talk about like clinical implications, right? So some of the things that are really important with autistic individuals, there's so there's so much, right, that happens every year of life that makes things so complicated, um, or not complicated, but just life, yeah, and, like big and beautiful and intense. <laughs> In the clinical implications, they really stress early diagnosis and early intervention is key, right? And why is that? Because with anybody's life, you want to give coping skills, you want to strengthen that inner self, you want to strengthen that sense of um, resilience and like intrinsic motivation to connect and to not necessarily achieve, but just experience life. Um, and sometimes achievement is part of that experience. So when we see a child who is uh, presenting as autistic and they are diagnosed early, whether man or, or whether boy or girl or, or non-binary, right? Um, but in our society right now, it's boy or girl until maybe a certain age until they can talk and tell you that they're non-binary. When we are able to honor what a child is needing and really listening to their way of communicating and scaffolding their learning, right? Their emotional learning, their social learning, their relationship with food, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with hygiene. Well, when your brain is an autistic brain, the way you do that and the way you learn is different than a neurotypicals brain. So if you're teaching an autistic child how to live life in a neurotypical way, it's you're you're automatically going to be going against the grain. And that's how I felt growing up. I often felt like okay, why why would we do it this way when I was already doing it this way? And I I as a, you know, socialized female who i i'm cis right so so i was comfortable with my femininity to some degree until i wasn't probably around adolescence um but i was considered a very well behaved and very smart i'm hyperlexic reading is like breathe actually breathing is probably harder for me than reading is <laughs> i'll be honest at this point <laughs> like drinking water and breathing are harder than than reading is for me <laughs> um yeah it is awesome right it's it's awesome that i can do that but then i struggled with other things like remembering to eat and you know remembering to do and that's how i've felt my whole life i have way too much to do i'm doing so much all the time which has made me uh you know, has gotten me to a successful space, which is not necessarily the story of every autistic individual. And as I'm processing my experience, I'm realizing some of my success is from people pleasing. Okay, 
Um, I need people to see me as a respectable human being. So I need to succeed at the highest degree. Did I necessarily need to do that? Or was it an intrinsic motivation? I'm still understanding that. But I think that if I would have had early intervention, if if the people around me would have validated my sensory needs and would have made space for my big emotions and would have uh, been able to help me process verbally and non-verbally what I was going through, then I think maybe I would have moved into a space where um, I was like just creating art maybe full time and I wouldn't have felt so much pressure to help other people. I love being a clinician and I love um, psychology. It's one of my special interests. I love working with people because it gives me great fulfillment. And I also love art probably just as much. So it's like, which has been helpful in my practice because to emotionally process all of my clients' um, lived experience in my, in my work with them, I am able to do art. So yeah, I think that um, the socialization of, of being a boy versus a girl probably helps girls mask more, like autistic girls mask more and then fly under the radar for longer, um, especially if they're, if, you know, their autism presents more in a, like, socially acceptable, like, in the ways that mine did. I think that I was, uh, you know, quote, unquote, a, a very good child, which is very, very anxious child, right? In boys, I think they're given a little bit more leeway, a little more room, maybe their stims tend to be uh, more physical rather than mm -hmm, external. And so maybe our society kind of sees that more as something to be corrected um, or something more of a problem. So they get put in a category maybe quicker. Um, and these are all just like my hypothesis. Well, that's, I was just about to say too, like, that's what I've found with my late diagnosis because I worked at, at a college. So the one thing I didn't expect at the college was to get people who haven't ever had a diagnosis before um, for whatever reason. And then they come to college and then they have access to mental health care and they're like, oh, this is a mental health thing. A lot of, of people where I was at, a lot of the females, socialized females, were people pleasers they were social they talked a lot they you know did all of those things which were pro-social like you said um and so <laughs> the internal like oh my god did i say the right thing you know um you know how do i say it you know i don't i don't know how to say this the right way or i don't know how to process this emotion or whatever it was was very internal for them so it got like you said passed over so again as a clinician that's what i'm seeing as well especially with the socialized females right because those are all pro-social female behaviors right the way we're socialized it's technically functional in our society it's not functional right within the self for self-esteem, right. identity, or safety, but it is definitely socially acceptable, which is a problem definitely. that needs to be addressed. And that's, that's what I said, too. Like, a lot of people have explained it to, like, 
you know, when you feel the feelings, it's not they, they're times 100, right, than, a, than a, a neurotypical person might feel. And having to regulate that on a routine basis um, while also people pleasing and trying to follow social cues that you can't read or, or you know, uh, it's hard to read anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then put all that together. Yeah, and it I, is yeah. just an anxiety producing uh, situation. Yeah. And it's actually really interesting um, as a clinician to not really be able to read social cues, but to have them memorized clinically as yep. a special interest. <laughs> no, that's what we would do is we would come up with rules. We come up with, okay, you know, in this situation, what's the rule? You know what I mean? Um, and then they would they would have that rule in their book for the next time they were in a situation like that, right? And I think as an ADHD or right, like mine's a little bit different because it's just that I get so excited I miss, you know, what other people are doing, right? And I'm so like hyper-focused in my, my what I'm thinking or everything's happening so fast that I miss out on things, right? So I had to learn how to be quiet and <laughs> and listen, which you don't hear me very quiet on here, but it's a podcast. So if I'm too quiet, then it won't, won't be good. But but yeah, like, right, I, I, I never thought of that. That's an amazing, really amazing thing for me to think about. And I, I guess, I don't know whether it's because I'm, you know, on the neurodivergent spectrum too. And we, we talk about the reason why we use neurodivergence, right, is because when you use the word disorder, it you know, it's like, oh, well, there's something wrong with you, right? Yeah. But if you put yeah. a whole bunch of ADHD and autistic people in a room together, we are absolutely fine. We get along just fine. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. And I feel so safe. <laughs> I, um, growing up, I felt very alone, which is, I think, uh, a common autistic uh, high school experience as of now, right? Or maybe as of when I was when I was in high school. And I think there was a lot of like internalized shame about not wanting to socialize in the way that other kids socialize. So I would go hang out. My mom would make she is my mother, <laughs> she um, <laughs> she's also neurodivergent. Um, but far on the ADHD side and I'm far on the autistic side. So we we kind of struggle with the parallel play because it's very different parallel play. So I was I had this like idea of my mind of how people socialize, how my mom socializes, talking to everyone, like buzzing around. And I'm like, I just want to sit here and make paper dolls for five hours while someone does something else next to me. And none of my friends want to do that with me. So (laughs) that's the problem. Um, And so I kind of like you let go of friends and you feel or I felt really alone um, and exhausted. And I think that if I would have understood that making friends means finding people who have similar interests to you, and allowing everything else to come natural instead of like what I did, (laughs) which was hyper-focus on how to make friends and then look at this list that did not make sense for my worldview, for my my brain, um, and then feeling like a failure 
as that didn't didn't pan out. Okay, okay. So we're like completely skirting around my whole thing, which is that um, I use um, games like Dungeons and Dragons as a therapeutic tool. And um, this is, you're talking about like the rules and socializing, being reinforced for, you know, the way you do things instead of the way everybody else does things. Like that's exactly why I do what I do, right? Um so getting a group of neurodiver- neurodivergent people together um, on the autism spectrum and having a social situation where, yes, you're playing together, but you each have your own roles, right, that you're in charge of. Um, but you know what the rules of, of the socialization are. You know what your role is. You know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but you have control over that character. And as a DM, as a dungeon master or a game master, mm-hmm. when someone does something that seems to be like super true to their self, that's when I go in and I go, yes, you don't even have to roll for that. You succeed, you know, or you get double, triple advantage on your role, you know, um, uh, because I want it to be a place where you can be, again, learn this, that you can be yourself. Yeah, I got chills. Yeah, mm-hmm. that you can be yourself and do things the way that you would do them. You don't have to do them like everybody else and get reinforced for it. And honestly, like D&D, even without my input, D&D reinforces those types of behaviors, right? Um, through their character. So I'm just like, this is why I do what yeah. I do. I want to create a no. space so you can like find out who that is, right? Like because society doesn't let you do that. Safely. Right. Safely. And I think that's like the biggest thing that I'm hearing from that is the safety of being able to express yourself fully in a controlled area. Because I think that for me, I masked so hard that there were times in my life where I kind of was like, okay, I'm so depressed that if I don't be myself, that, you know, I'm going to kill myself, right? And so I was like, okay, well, let me make this character of who I am, who I think I am. And I am very, like, expressive and, like, people are like, Aaliyah, she's just, ah, you know? And there was, like, a huge dichotomy between, like, my authentic self which is not always so vibrant and then sometimes I am super vibrant and like allowing myself to be both of those things no matter what I did not do that I just was the vibrant one because that was palatable to other people and other people was the only place I could feel any kind of validation but if I had something like what you were talking about where it was a safe space for me to like express myself Fully with other people who were trying to do the same thing instead of constantly being around people who were like, hey, that's really weird that you're expressing yourself this way because I would never. And I'm like, we are not the same. Yeah. <laughs> In what way are we the same? We are not same. Uh, yeah. No. And that's what you were talking about early intervention, you know, and a lot of um, a lot of the people I work with are early intervention type of people. So they use the D&D therapy or D&D um, uh, or RPG, whatever you want to call it. They use it with younger kids because they want to give them those experiences early so that they don't come up with the anxiety. They don't mask as feel like they need to mask as much 
I specifically wanted to focus on the adults because I know I got diagnosed two years ago with ADHD. You're talking about how you got diagnosed with, you know, autism a little while ago. Like, where's the resources for us that we can learn how to express ourselves as well in a safe space? You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I do. I think that the adult part is really important. Um, because the conversations are usually around children, right? When you think of an autistic child, um, often people will think of a, a, a very young boy um, or maybe even a, a young girl, but usually a young boy. And I am, I am just very not, <laughs> like no, it's been really exhausting how many people have invalidated um, me telling them that I'm autistic, even though like I am a professional in the field mm-hmm. and like have like all of the resources I possibly could, you know, wish for and for people to doubt the reality and the validity of what I'm saying as I'm trying to explain and have all the words, have all of all of the capacity to be able to share and articulate exactly what my experience has been, which has also been really intense um, for, you know, to find out that you're autistic and then have all of the language for it already downloaded in your brain and just like putting it in order onto yourself. Um, so for those who are, are processing a late diagnosis, Take your time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Allow yourself. Sure. I know it's hard. <laughs> you want all the answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eating when I first found out was, was very difficult because it's just a lot of overstimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. No. And <laughs> the the other thing too, the, the superhero therapy, right? Like we were talking about of, you know, autism and, and neurodivergence and things like that. Like, Maybe he wasn't a hero, but I had one client who, well, I think he's a hero because he's Spock, but Spock to me is a hero. I don't know if he's a hero. Okay. I just wanted to make sure like he's not like a superhero, but it, and the reason why I bring up Spock was because I had a a client that, you know, had late diagnosis, autism, and we were talking about processing emotions and how annoying emotions are and how (laughs) they didn't want to feel them anymore um, and all those things. And they were like, that's why I identify with Spock because Spock at the beginning of his arc is trying to fight his emotions constantly, right? Like he hates his human side that he has emotions and it's not just logic, right? And this was my client. My client was like, that is me, Like, that is exactly what I'm dealing with. And so their homework became to actually go and watch Star Trek as well, um, all the way into Discovery, because uh, Discovery actually has an entire arc on Spock and how he kind of accepted who he was, found out how to do that, how to deal with his emotions, how to process them and use them for, you know, good. And I was like, okay, your homework is to go find that episode and go watch it, right? Because they were identifying so hard with Spock because of the the logic versus the emotion. Um, and I, I feel like that's a big theme that comes with autism is this like, you've got the, the logic and then these pesky emotions get in the way of the logic. Depends on how much trauma the individual experiences. And let's talk about autism and trauma because... Mm-hmm. 
being overstimulated and not feeling connected to the people around you is traumatic, right? And the longer that experience becomes your day-to-day, right? The longer that that persists and you don't have support and you don't have understanding of yourself, the more you're going to start dissociating, right? Because that's often what happens when we are experiencing trauma the brain says, let's deal with this crisis right now. And what do you need to deal with crises? Logic, right? So it's this experience of like, okay, I'm out in the world. I am terrified right now. I'm terrified of saying the wrong thing. I'm tired of being the wrong way. I'm tired of, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, afraid of, um, of the pain of being overstimulated and not being understood or, or um, validated for that. And then you you go into this like safe place within the mind that uh, all your emotions get to live in, but they they're not felt like human emotions. They are uh, you know processed through music, or they're processed through fantasy, or they're processed through right like uh, reading, scripting, reading, reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and plays e- oh. and stories, yeah. I know not everyone will understand this, but for those clinicians who are listening, okay, is reading not effectively just stimulating bilateral stimulation, which is helping you process your emotions? And I'm realizing how much bilateral stimulation is just naturally occurs in our day-to-day life, which is done with EMDR, which is for trauma processing. But yeah, so so processing all of those things uh, because of the trauma and the dissociation and then having like, okay, this is myself that is emotional and that's my vibrant self who's, you know, and then there's this very logical side of me that comes out when I'm overstimulated. Oh, I'm overstimulated? Well, no, I can't do that thing. Why are you asking me why I can't do this? It's very obvious why I can't do that thing. Obviously, because this, 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 and this. And I have a list of things of why I could never do that thing. And mom, why are you even asking me to do that insane request? Because it's completely illogical. And it may be confusing for the people in our lives because they're like, whoa, when you're emotionally regulated, which they can't see whether we're emotionally regulated or not. That's why we have that little octopus that... As the smile yeah. or the frown, right? So <laughs> even though you can't see that there's a storm brewing inside of my body, this octopus is telling you that I am in my logical self. I am in my, you know, limbic system. I am trying to survive with each breath right now. And I'm, I need to slow. I need life to be slow. I need life to be calm. And I need life to be quiet and dark, right? And then there's the other side of me when I'm regulated and I want to play and I want to connect. And, and so it can feel like these completely two different parts of you. And when you are depressed, when one is depressed, anyone, right? But then specifically the autistic individual is depressed for a prolonged amount of time. Then there's this certain presentation that gets kind of like uh, trademarked as an autistic person. But if an autistic person is regulated and has all the accommodations and sensory needs are accommodated for, there is a plethora of, of connection and vibrancy and, and, and groundedness and, and uh, wanting to feel the emotions and not pushing them away. And so these should more be of signs that someone is in distress rather than a, uh, something that defines their personality or characterhood. 
Yeah, no, and that's what I <laughs> I was trying to get to mm-hmm, was mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know uh, emotions, <laughs> and I I would always say I would always <laughs> say to them, I'm sorry, but you're human, so yeah. you have emotions, and you're gonna have to process them. And they it, yeah exactly, and they're like no, no reality. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, and and that was that was one of the most fun things, you know. Uh, the closest I think that I got to superhero therapy uh, was was talking about Spock in that sense, and it, it was amazing to see their face light up and be like, "That's me. That's what I'm going through." And what comes up when you talk about this is is this idea of masking and the emotional intelligence. So there's this assumption that uh, neurodivergent folks have lowered emotional intelligence. I suppose maybe that's a rhetoric in other words, probably. Um, But what really happens is that neurodivergent folks often struggle to identify their own emotions and experiences because from a very young age, they were socialized to prioritize the emotional regulation of the people around them. So while it doesn't really matter what I'm thinking and feeling, because when I do share what I'm thinking and feeling, it gets invalidated, I get in trouble for it, I get punished for it, people say that I'm weird, or um, they have a reaction that feels unsafe to me. So what I'm hearing is that you're allowing them to Uh, have a space where the way that they've already been relating to their own emotions, right, by being depersonalized, well, I'm not going to shame this because it's not me. It's this character. And even though I don't like this about myself, or I haven't accepted this about myself, I can accept it in this character. And that's what I'm then doing for myself. And I think as a person of color, black person, queer person, etc. I didn't have like video games, but I definitely felt very connected to certain TV shows. And as social media became a part of my life, um, just consumption wise, I realized a lot of internalized ableism, uh, racism, misogyny, etc. And the way I reversed that uh, internalized indoctrination in my own mind so that I could be free and safe to be myself in this world was by following content creators that did look more like me and acted more like me. And even if I did feel maybe that it was cringe at the beginning, the more I connected to their page, the more I was able to accept them and love them and therefore then accept and love myself. So I'm so excited that you guys are doing (laughs) the things that you're doing with clients. It's so funny. Clients will come in and be like, well, how much do I make the character like me? I'm like, don't worry. It'll come out anyway. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And a lot of the the individual shines through, right? Like when I, as I realized I was autistic and feeling like I was masking, I was like, who am I? Is any of this the real me or is all of this just for other people? And as I looked back at pictures, I saw how, um, I'm getting emotional. I saw how like I was shining through no matter what. And I think that's this internal resiliency that wants to heal, that wants to be the self, that even though I was masking and I thought I was doing such a good job at being a neurotypical, right? Like, I don't know what it means to be neurotypical. So I could never be neurotypical. It's impossible. And no matter how well I think I'm masking, I'm not. And like, I am being myself, even if, the self was feeling dull 
or feeling, um, you know, a reflection of other people. Like you were saying that there was definitely components of myself that felt really authentic and I just needed to strengthen and like step further into like the characterized version of myself, which is very much a caricature. Like, you know, autistic traits are sameness and our sensory sensitivity. So I wear the same clothes very repeatedly like I eat the same foods very repeatedly and I do kind of feel like a cartoon character in my life but that's just because that's what I genuinely enjoy doing that's authentic to me and that does feel like the mask that can be used as a tool and a protection to like face the world I need to eat the same breakfast in the morning so that I can face the world and be the person in connection and socially that I want to be and not be the the overstimulated, exhausted, um, hyperlogical version of myself that doesn't feel human and doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. No. So <laughs> I think we've, I, I'm, I just, in my head, I'm like, that's why I go to cons. That's why I go to yeah. like PAX Unplugged. That's why I go to I just went to uh, GeeklyCon, which uh, is a podcast that I listen to, and it's just like 300, I swear, 300 neurodivergent people <laughs> in one hotel playing board games all day long and just like, hey, when you need space, go ahead, go back to your hotel room. Like, no judgments whatsoever on what you needed to do to take care of yourself in that situation. So... Um, you know, talking about that, talking about treatments, talking about, you know, kind of acceptance and things like that. Um, you know, what type of treatments, especially, you know, with the, the, you know, autism disorder clinical specialist certification that you're going through, like, what are the treatments that they identify are kind of the, the top tier? Yes. Okay. So, um, one Earliest intervention, accepting yourself as early as possible, understanding what autism is as early as possible, and parent intervention, right? Um, so that's for children, and there is a lot of research, uh, and there's a lot of information based off of children. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about adults. I was going to say, like, if you have some uh, research on adults, please let me know because there is not a lot out there. There is not. No, but I am in the process of just know I write down almost every single thought I have, um, which I need to let go of because it is becoming way too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think that the I would say, OK, so first I'm going to say my clinical opinion, then I'm going to give you my personal opinion. So through the certification, right, I'm really understanding that understanding the nervous system and the polyvagal theory is critical to supporting yourself as an individual and or um, clinician support. And if you do not feel like that uh, information is digestible to you, which is perfectly fine, it is a lot of uh, very scientific and academic uh, based rhetoric um, or language then consult a therapist and ask and advocate for yourself, ask for them to explain it in a way that feels safer for your brain and, and your capacity. Um, so understanding the nervous system, which is how you regulate yourself, how you calm yourself down, how, how to uh, get your emotions to feel like they're flowing through you instead of like this static electric 
electricity bolt that just takes you out sometimes for minutes, hours, days, right? So that's a huge thing that needs to be um, considered with the autistic adult, especially if you've had prolonged stress of not being, of being undiagnosed, the trauma of being undiagnosed through childhood. Okay, so polyvagal theory, you can research that, ask your therapist about it, okay? Also, um, <clears throat> having a, a support system, right? So advocating for yourself in the, in the way of communicating with the people around you, and you can use the word neurodivergence, you can use autistic, or you could just say, this is something that I need. I need you to be more gentle with your words. I need you to understand that I have sensory differences that need to be validated. I need whatever you need, right? I need to eat the same food when I'm overwhelmed and when I'm not overwhelmed, then I need to eat these other things that I enjoy, right? I need to stim, stim. <laughs> Can we talk about stimming and how important stimming is for autistic individuals? Uh, stimming helps you regulate your emotions. Stimming brings joy, releases dopamine and serotonin. And stimming is just amazing. And there's a thousand ways to do it, right? You can do it through art, visual stims, physical stims. Let me um, tell emotional, you, yeah. <laughs> I just found out what my stim, my, I was like, I'm ADHD. I know I have a yeah, stim. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? And I'm like, yeah, I doodle sometimes and stuff like it's singing. Not that I can sing. I sing along. Yeah. Along with like music. Letting yourself do all of these things that feel natural to you, whether you're good at it or not. And I think that as an autistic individual, we're forced to feel like we're not good enough. And so doing things that we enjoy may we may stop ourselves because we're like well i'm not good at this thing but yes vocal stims and and also meditation meditation can look any way that you want it to look okay as long as it is safe for your body and safe for others bodies oh my god so i i literally okay i'm on tiktok uh so there's one person that was talking about okay you know, as an adhd -er, how do you meditate? Because we literally have to move all of the time and thoughts are going so fast. And I was like, you know what? It's a really good question. My answer is that whenever I'm doing a repetitive, like, okay, so I made some, some dice on my 3D resin printer and they were clear blue. So I needed to actually sand and polish them so you could see through it, right? So it looked clear. And it's a very repetitive, patterned behavior. And so just zoning out and doing that physical behavior, I'm using the energy I have, right, as an adhd -er. It's interesting enough that I can hyper-focus on it, but it's still moving. It's still, you know, and then that is the only time that I can tell you that I'm not thinking of anything. Yeah. And I think like finding that sweet spot um, as this is more of personal advice, but stims come and they go, right? But but finding stims, which are, are stimulations, they stimulate your senses to help you process emotions and help you focus. So when you find a stim that, that connects with the emotional distress or the physical pain you're experiencing. Like I've noticed that when I have physical pain in my forehead, that means I need to journal. I'm having a lot of mental uh, 
you know, stimulation that's that needs to be released. And so I do that by journaling or talking or even singing. Um, that helps me process. Maybe if I'm feeling a lot of uh, uh, pain or tension on my hands, my hands need that stimulation. Maybe I need to sit on my hands or maybe I need to fidget with a toy to get my hands moving. Maybe my feet are feeling um, fidgety and I need to put on compression socks. Really listening to your body is how you find out what stims are good for you and just what you are attracted to. Oh, I see someone over there and they're wearing um, this thing that I really just deep down in my gut feel connected to. It's not because you're trying to be a poser and you want to copy them, which is what all the teens, I don't want to do that because I don't want to copy them. Copy everyone. Copy everyone. (laughs) Do what feels good to you because you're not going to copy someone that you don't admire and respect. Um, okay, so stimming is one. And then also getting, uh, having support, right, in clinicians, um, family members, friends, finding other autistic individuals, finding advocates that you can consult with. And a huge thing that um, Temple Grandin said on, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, she's a, she's a pretty famous uh, autistic individual in the psychology community. Um, and she was speaking about how important mentorship is Um, because if we think about learning um, and how different every single person learns like autistic or not every single person learns so differently Um, and finding mentors that can teach you in the way that you digest information and that's why therapists are so great because they're just teachers who didn't want to K through 12. <laughs> <laughs> we're just teachers who are hyper for life. psychology. Yeah, yeah we're, we're life teachers, teachers for life. <laughs> life. We're gentle teachers. Well, some of us. Plus, I think like as neurodivergent kids, right, growing up in the school system, we experience some trauma from that space and having to work there every day. I don't know if that would be good for my mental health. I, I was happy to leave high school <laughs> and I don't want to go back. Mm, uh, same I mean I did I was a substitute teacher but I can speak from that experience that it was it's really hard to see how overwhelmed the school system is right now but this is a tangent we can have another podcast so yes stimming getting support accepting yourself um, and uh, finding mentorship um, accommodating your sensory needs accommodating And, and can I just say at the very like eat three meals a day, sleep eight hours of a night, um, you know, drink eight glasses of water or whatever, you know, drink water. Like at the very least, these are markers that can tell you whether you need support or not. Okay. So if you're finding it difficult to eat three meals a day, for whatever reason, whether you're autistic or not, you need support. So I'm saying for the autistic community, which may specifically struggle with this due to executive dysfunction, low motivation, or difficulty um, understanding, uh, difficulty with proprioception, which is one of our senses, difficulty understanding when our body is saying, I'm hungry, or I'm thirsty, which has been a really big process for me to understand. Like, when I'm hungry, there's a thought that comes into my brain. I won't share it, but it has nothing to do with hang- hunger. And I was like, that's not helpful. Why is this the thought that tells me 
that I'm hungry, but I'm glad I know it now. And now I only ignore it sometimes. So, <laughs> so finding out how your body is communicating to you and figuring out how to respond with love instead of uh, shame and uh, ignoring it. So I think those are my biggest, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I I actually, at that Geekly Con, uh, they actually had a panel on intuitive eating. That's exactly what they said, was like, you have to just listen to your body and it will tell you what it needs and how much it needs. Um, and having these kind of uh, rules about what's bad to eat and what you should and shouldn't eat and things like that, that just causes more dysfunction than... You know, just listening to uh, what, how much your body needs or when it needs it, you know, things like that. So I actually, since then, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just going to start listening to what my body's actually telling me. And it's working really, yes. really well because normally how quickly it re-regulates. Yeah. I was like, normally I have three or four pieces of pizza because I'm like stressed out and not listening. But then I was like, mm, I only need one. I'm good. And then I was done. And so, you know, it definitely, you know, again, like accepting who you are, I can't, that's such a hard thing to explain to people, right? And I think a part of what the way, whether you know you're accepting yourself or not, is if you're telling yourself, I shouldn't do that. If you've been told, I shouldn't do that, or I should do something differently, or I do it wrong, or whatever, if that thought is going through your head, then you're not accepting yourself for, for who you are. And it's really hard to find those because they're so socialized into us. They're so, they happen so many times and it's so innate a lot of times, um, you know, and, and you talked about mentorship too. And that was something I have come to the conclusion for as well is this like, I do not need to reinvent the wheel. There are people out there doing exactly what I need that know exactly how to do what I need to do. I just have to find them. They have the answer. Yeah. Um, And so finding those people and finding that support system, it just, you're exactly right um, with that. At least that's, that's what I found too. And that's what I always tell my clients too. Like you can't do this in a vacuum. Like you have to have a support system. Yeah. And I think that it, that that support system can look any way that you want it to look like. Like, even if that's, yeah, like my dogs, like I've realized that living alone is really important for me because I people please to a, such a degree that, that just hearing someone existing in my space makes me want to take care of them. But having my dogs really supplement, you know, the need for that uh, physical affection daily. So it's like, that is what feels good to me right now. And I don't need to uh, fantasize about the future in which maybe I'll have a partner that I will ultimately probably like have several difficult experiences with and like fantasizing about how beautiful that would be because I need that physical affection. But shifting my, uh, my perspective to the present and accommodating. What do I need? I need physical affection. What is the answer? The answer is two puppies that I am obsessed with. My my babies, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think we've, we've covered a whole heck of a lot. Um, 
I know there's way more. Um, and again, we will have people back on uh, probably more than twice, more than three times because there's so much to cover. Um, but I think we, we covered a good amount. Uh, so we're going to probably close it out here. Um, we definitely want to thank uh, our listeners because that's, you know, that's what we're, who we're doing this for, right? Um, and if you enjoy our content, please review it on whatever platform you're using um, so that others can find this information. And that's that's really what we're fighting for here is to get this information to people so they feel supported, so they know the information and could go seek out, you know, whatever treatment or support system they need, right? Um, and we are also here as a support system. We would love to answer your questions. We have yet to get anybody to ask us any questions yet as uh, uh, from our listeners, but um, we would love to answer any questions you have about mental health, about the diagnosis we've covered, anything. Um, and you can uh, send that to mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Um, we would love to cover anybody's questions. Um, you can also find the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Mental Health Quest Podcast. Um, it's a capital P uh, in that whole uh, thing there. Uh, and Aaliyah, how, where would we find you on the interwebs? So I am on Instagram. It's mostly uh, just me being me, <laughs> but there's definitely a lot of psychology in there. It's one of my special interests. So if you'd like to follow me there. Um, it's Aaliyah Payne underscore MFT, and that's A-L-I-Y-A-H-P-A-Y-N-E underscore MFT on Instagram. Oh, boy. Yes. All right. And you can find me at Nat20Therapy just pretty much everywhere uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, that's my website name. You can find me all over the place with that. Um, and I think that's about it. So we really thank you, Aaliyah, for coming on. Uh, that was, um, amazing. I even learned something. I'm going to go look up polyvagal theory because I haven't, uh, I've been hearing about it recently, right? But, um, I haven't actually been taught it, you know, 12 years, 13 years in the, in the system. You have to go find stuff yourself. You're not getting taught anything anymore. So, I'm going to go look that up. So I really appreciate you uh, as not only the the expert clinician, but also as the expert uh, living, you know, with this as well. So, you know, definitely thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Yep. And we will uh, be back soon. See ya. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm -hmm.